Hey folks, welcome to another edition of the Electables podcast. I'm Doug Thornell, and uh, it's been about four weeks since the election. Uh, we're starting to see the enormity of, uh, of Joe Biden's victory. Uh, states are getting certified. Popular vote is still coming in. Uh, but it looks like he's going to get, uh, you know, he'll he'll get over 80 million votes. Uh, looks like Trump is now under 47 percent of the popular vote, and Biden's on uh, is going to win 306 electoral votes. The picture in the House is becoming clearer and clearer, uh, with some races now being called. Uh, most recently, I believe California 25 was called for uh, Mike Garcia. Um, and then obviously we're looking along, you know, we're, we're looking into the future, uh, January. In early January, we've got the special election that will determine the majority of the Senate in Georgia to uh, two runoffs there. And uh, couldn't think of a better guy to have on to help us break this down uh, than my friend uh, Josh Kroshauer. Josh has been on the, the podcast before. Um, he is the politics editor for National Journal. He is the uh, Against the Grain podcast host and columnist. Uh, and he's a local guy, a local townie like me. He grew up in Springfield, Virginia. So we uh, spent a lot of time also talking about local sports, which we might do on this uh, podcast, given some uh, some interesting going-ons around here in the D- DMV with our sports teams. But Josh, first of all, welcome to the show. I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, uh, just want to kind of get right at it. Um, uh, it's been So it's been a month from the election. What has most surprised you about what happened on November 3rd? Well, the biggest surprise was really what happened down ballot. Uh, The fact that Republicans look like they'll pick up 12 seats, 11 to 12 seats in the House when all the expectations were Democrats were going to gain seats as many as 10 to 20, uh, according to the Cook Political Report's final analysis before the election. And the fact that, you know, almost every close Senate race, with the exception of Arizona, went the Republicans' way, Georgia being the big the big runoff right now, and, and Democrats, I think, still have a good chance to, to take back a 50-50 majority. But look, North Carolina, Maine, Iowa, there were a lot of states that looked like they were going to tilt toward the Democrats at the end, ended up going for the Republicans, in some cases by pretty, pretty hefty margins. So, I mean, the big lesson I took away from the the 2020 election is that we are a divided country where their their turnout was at its highest uh, level percentage wise since 1900. Republicans turned out. Trump had an army of voters that didn't even show up for him in 2016 that that came out. But but Biden and and the Democrats had a majority, uh, the 51 percent of the vote, about the same uh, popular vote margin that that Obama won in his second uh, campaign in 2012. But there was also a critical mass of voters who liked Joe Biden, didn't like Trump, but also wanted a more moderate, more pragmatic uh, direction on policy. And uh, you saw a lot of, uh, or at least a critical mass of, of, of split ticket voters in some suburban districts, in some districts that, um, you know, are Republican leaning at the national level, but ended up voting for Biden this time and also voting for a Republican member of Congress down, down the ballot. Dave Wasserman from the Cook Political Report. He's a past guest and I know uh, someone that uh, uh, is is very well respected by everyone uh, in politics. Uh, he had a theory uh, or I think it was a I just read an article where he was talking about 
you know, sort of what happened down ballot for Democrats this cycle. And one of the things that, um, you know, was put out there was that in 2018, Trump wasn't on the ballot. And all of these suburban voters and all of these Republican voters who had real issues with Trump, the only way that they could exercise sort of a, a rejection of Trump was to vote for Democratic House members. Now in 2020, that reject that that um, that hostility to Trump remained, and they could actually vote against Trump, but they also had some permission to vote Republican in the House, which is probably sort of their default position given economic issues. So it sort of worked out in uh, in a strange way where you know this notion that there was going to be this down ballot wave uh, didn't materialize, but that the but you saw voters sort of strate- actually go into the ballot and strate- make a strategic decision here. Like, look, we can't stand Trump. We need to get rid of him. Biden's a good guy. We're going to vote for Biden. But there's we want to we also want to sort of have some balance there. So we're going to vote for the Republican and our, you know, in the in, you know, our, our Republican incumbent and in some cases the Republican challenger. Yeah, I think that was part of it, though. I think the bigger miss and the bigger analytical blind spot is the fact that there were a lot of sort of shy Trump voters, even in some of these Republican-leaning suburbs, that the polls didn't capture. And I'm not just talking about the media polls. I'm talking about the Democratic polls and even a lot of the Republican polls. You know, in the House races, the biggest misses came in, in sort of these traditionally Republican suburban districts like Ann Wagner's seat in, around the St. Louis area, uh, Staten Island, Max Rose, uh, Oklahoma City, Cincinnati, like the, these Republican-leaning suburban areas. So we're not talking about like Fairfax County, Virginia, where, where I'm from, but you know, a little more conservative suburban and exurban areas where the polls that I talked to the top Democratic strategists about before the election showed Joe Biden in the lead in almost all these districts. And when you look at the the data, Trump won almost all of them, and in many cases, by pretty comfortable margins. So there was this, and I would call it a shy Trump vote, that the people in the suburbs, in a lot of these areas where maybe their friends uh, don't like Trump and don't want to hear uh, someone who's who's for Trump. And I think the polls failed to capture, I mean, the, the, the polls were off badly across the board, but especially for house races in many of these types of districts. And I, I, I think that there was, we saw the Republican turnout beating expectations. We saw Trump, you know, turned out more votes than, than any Republican nominee has had in quite some time. There there was this sort of wave of Trump voters that showed up uh, on election day. And I think that was what was underestimated and underappreciated. It wasn't just in, you know, the small town and rural America, but there were parts of, of, of the country where we thought, you know, suburban women were going to overwhelmingly reject President Trump. And they rejected him, but they just didn't reject him by the margins that the polls showed. And that allowed Republicans to do a lot better than, than expectations in, the, in these unlikely areas. I, I wanted to ask you about how much does polling impact your reporting? And then how much do you think polling impacts rep- political journalism in general? Um, because I hear you, I, look, I, 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 you know, obviously Trump did better than people expected, but at the same time, Joe Biden had a convincing, convincing victory at the, at the national level. Uh, you know, 
Biden was under, uh, Biden got well, got over 50%. It looks like Trump is going to be the first, you know, he, he, he didn't get over 47 his first time. He didn't get over, doesn't look like he's going to get over 47% this time. We've got Biden getting 80 million votes, you know, so it was a pretty convincing victory. I mean, yes, Biden, Trump was able to turn out 73 million, 74, but Biden turned out a lot more. Um, and I guess my point is, is that he didn't win by 10 points like some polls had him. But are we in it? I don't know if we live in an era when you can have that type of Ronald Reagan, Walter Mondale victory anymore. The country's too divided. But just to the point about polling first, and you can just react well, to what I just said. Let me let me bring up the second point first, because I think it's important to have two thoughts at the same time. Joe Biden is going to win by about five points in the popular vote. That's about the same margin that Obama had. In fact, I think it's going to be a little larger than Obama's margin in 2012 when he won re-election. That's a good victory. That, 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 the, ex, the, the problem was the polling. The problem was the expectations game. Um, national polls, you know, if you buy the, the 538 average, had Trump losing by about eight points, I believe. So it was about half of, of, of the expectations in terms Which of Which isn't margin. that bad. I mean, you know, if you factor in a margin of error, I mean... Four points, yeah. yeah I mean, it's not that bad. Not that bad of a miss. I mean, the bigger, the bigger, you know, the bigger error was certain states like Wisconsin, which was a, if you asked me right before election night, what I thought about the blue wall states, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you know, I would have thought Biden would have won by close to 10 points. I mean, that, that Wisconsin, the poll showed him up by eight or nine points in the average. He only won by less than one percentage point. So, you know, it, it, I, I almost wonder that if we had the Midwestern states reporting early on election night instead of the, the Sunbelt states. And we all of a sudden had like these these too close to call races on election night. The psychology might have been a lot different because it was really like the Michigan, Wisconsin and, and even the Pennsylvania polling that was the most off um, when it comes to the, the presidential race. But, you know, your, your bigger... What do you mean about the psychology it, just in terms of just... Talk to me about. Well, yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the. Well, so Trump was like, trying to exploit voter psychology. People don't follow elections like you and I do. So, you know, Trump has been trying to exploit this conspiracy theory, this unfounded conspiracy theory, that because the early votes, the absentee votes, which were disproportionately Democrat, were counted later in certain states, that that, that somehow is illegitimate or somehow suggests some malfeasance. But it also plays, you know, you can also see. That, that kind of psychological dynamic playing on the Democratic side where, you know, look, I think most Democrats thought that they would win. They did win. And Biden did win Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Michigan. But I think the expectation was that they would win all those states a little more comfortably. So if you're going into election night and those were the three states that were reporting early and all of a sudden it's too close to call in Wisconsin and Michigan's a two point, you know, that would have scared, that would have scared the bejesus out of a lot of Democrats in a different. I mean, they were, you know, Florida. Well, was it big, did. I mean, remember, that's I mean, we went to sleep. Uh, and at the time, Trump was ahead raw votes in, in Pennsylvania and in some of these other states and everything else was too close to call because all votes were still coming in. And I remember reading, you know, one tip sheet in the morning and it was about like essentially how like how are Democrats going to explain this historic failure? Right. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? Well, and but anyway, well, well, you're right. You're right. You know, I want to get to your, your your bigger point, which is a really important one is. Polling, like, will I use polling as closely? Yes, as will have? you use polling again? <laughs> and look, now I am, I do rely on polling, and I think every journalist worth their salt does. And that that's the one independent source of data 
that we have to tell a story to, to get the facts out there. But I also have always, unlike some of the, there's some like Nate Silver is like a polling aggregator. He he doesn't do reporting in the campaigns. He 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 literally is looking at the numbers and the data and has a fantastic kind of machine, a model that that weights the polls and 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 has all these other you know factors as part of this model. And but he's only as good as the polls that he's getting, right? He's only as good as the data that he's putting in that machine. I have a different as a reporter, as an analyst, as someone who who talks to campaign strategists on a daily basis, I have a more holistic way of like looking at elections. I certainly look at the data, the polling. I talked probably to more campaign operatives who have access to internal data that they will share off the record. Now, I don't think the internal data was all that much better in this election, uh, no matter what party you're talking to. But that's something that I factor into my analysis. But also, nothing's a substitute for actually talking to voters. Like, you know, you're looking at the data, but also reporting uh, talking to operatives, going on the ground, talking to voters, getting a sense of, of the mood, uh, that that's an important supplement to when you're looking at polls. And, and even just looking at historical trends or fundamentals of, of a state, demographic trends, the fundamental history of a state's elector, electoral performance. You know, Florida, for example, has been trending in a Republican direction in the last uh, six, you know, since, since 2012, since Obama won a second term. And you could, you know, there was a lot of data, there was a lot of polling, and there was a lot of anecdotal reporting that suggested that Hispanic voters in Florida, Cuban Americans, even Puerto Ricans, were moving towards Trump. And you know that you can you can look at look at the, the the polls, or you can look at that demographic trend, and you can kind of use use other signals to to, to make you know good good analysis to, to to affect your analysis. So you know, I, I use polls, and I don't think I'm going to stop using polls, though I may be a bit more skeptical. And how I, I view them, but I think you need to have as any good analyst needs to have a holistic approach. You can't just rely on one thing. Polling is one part of good analysis. Reporting's one part of good analysis. You know, looking at history and fundamentals—that's another good part of analysis. Yeah, I so I want to um, and Nate Silver. I, I've you know I listen to his podcast pretty religiously, and uh, you know he he has a different take on. He doesn't believe shy Trump voters exist, actually, um, which is an interesting conversation for to to have. But I I do think that there's a, I read this interesting article. It was an opinion piece in the Post by a David Hill, who's a director of Hill Research. Um, and and here's one point that I think, as it relates to polling, is interesting. Um, um, and let me quote this. So it says, whereas once I could extract one complete interview from five voters, it can now take calls to as many as 100 voters to complete a single interview, even more in some segments of the electorate. Uh, and here's the killer detail. That single cooperative soul who speaks with an interviewer cannot possibly hold the same opinions as the 99 other voters who refused. In short, we no longer have a truly random we we no longer have truly random samples that support claims that poll results accurately represent opinions of the electorate. So I and, and it, it's uh, it's in the post. It, I, I don't know if you'd read that or uh, I encourage folks to take a look. It was an interesting article. But one of the things he recommends is that we start posting and publishing the response rate of polls. Oftentimes, you have a methodology when you're when you're um, you know when when we're reporting on polls, what the margin of error is, the sample size, the duration of the period, the duration of the interview period. You obviously see the questionnaire, but uh, the response rate isn't oftentimes. I don't know even if it is ever published. What do you think about that? 
I, you know, I, I would almost defer to the pollsters because, I mean, it sounds like a good idea. Uh, more transparency is a good thing. It sounds it reminds me of when like ESPN started putting OPS on like the on the on the batting on the you know the lines of all the batters. The more data, the more information you know, the better data it's better to have as a consumer. Um, you know, I, I there've been a lot of theories though. I mean, that's one theory. Yeah. What uh, are the what are the pollsters that you talk to when you said, "Hey, what happened?" Yeah. What is their what is their um, explanation to what happened? So the most common theory is that Trump voters are uniquely low trust Americans. They don't, they, it's not, a, I mean, I, I, I kind of put out and I wrote a column about the shy Trump analysis. And I think that's one theory. I, I think the house race data is particularly compelling on that front, but you know, there's a lot of other folks who, who think that shy Trump voters do talk to pollsters and, and they do like to share their opinions and, you know, that, willing to listen to, to other evidence against that. But one other theory that Nate Cohn of the New York Times, I think, really wrote about compellingly is that Trump voters are low trust voters. They don't talk to pollsters. You can't reach them very easily. And it's not, you know, it's not just Republicans versus Democrats. Trump voters ha have a unique demographic profile. Many of them don't show up or didn't show up for elections before Trump came on to the political scene. And it's just hard to find them. It's just, and, and a lot of them don't want to talk to pollsters. They don't want to talk to the media. Uh, so there is a, a theory that even if you have, you know, you resample these working class white voters that may fit that Trump demographic effect effectively, those are not the entirety of the Trump vote. You're leaving out a good chunk of voters that just don't want to talk to, to pollsters and just hang up the phone or are really, really hard to reach. So, I mean, I, I think that's a, that's a, that's a legitimate theory um, as in its compelling theory, from what I've read. Now, I, you know, the shy, the thing with the shy Trump effect is I think the evidence is pretty clear that there are a lot of shy Trump voters in general when, when it comes to people not wanting to share their views about Trump when they're with other people on Facebook or in person that may have different political beliefs in the suburbs. Um, the question is, do they talk to pollsters? I mean, they, I think the, 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 there are a lot of people clearly that don't like to share their political views on uh, Trump or, you know, if they're more conservative uh, to, to their friends, but we don't know if that necessarily translates into whether they're willing to tell a pollster who they voted for. What's Trump's end game? I mean, right now he just did a, you know, there was just, he just did this sort of crazy 45 minute online video that he posted on Twitter where he brought up all the sort of, you know, conspiracy theories that he is, uh, embraced about the election uh we're we're it, it's we're recording this on december 3rd um the the you know the elections in in most of these key states have been certified there has been no evidence of fraud let alone widespread fraud that would have that could impact the 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 outcome here what's his end game what do you think his end game is well you know how we've always talked about whether Trump is sort of out, out, outsmarting the experts or whether whether he's playing three-dimensional chess or whether this yeah. is just Trump. I actually think, I mean, I, I'm actually sort of surprised so many people think Trump is going to maintain a stranglehold over the Republican Party out of office. Um, there's no doubt he's going to have influence. But there's a lot of, you know, I don't, I don't think people realize how out of touch Trump is, even with his own advisors. And I, I also think they overestimate the number of true Trump loyalists, the, the Sidney Powells, the Lynn Woods, these people that are spouting the most inane conspiracy theories, 
you know, if, if Trump goes down that road and it looks like he is, that that McConnell is not going to be able to keep an alliance with Trump out of office if Trump is busy trying to oust Republican governors and senators from office in two years. You know, there's going to be something's going to have to hit the fan if, if, if Republicans lose those two Georgia Senate seats and they lose the Senate because Donald Trump continues to mount attacks on Georgia Republicans and continues to, to, to throw out these crazy conspiracy theories, that, that's unsustainable politically. Republicans, Mitch McConnell is all about winning. And, and, and for the last four years, he's been able to hold this alliance together and win some, some big races. But that all comes apart if Trump doesn't have advisors around him and doesn't have people telling him, you can't go on the cracking. You can't, you can't be spouting this crazy stuff. It's only going to hurt the Republican Party. So, yeah, look, Trump does have a lot of loyal Republican voters. But just like Joe Biden, you know, everyone thought Twitter was reality for the Democrats and Joe Biden didn't have a lot of Twitter fans, but he easily won the Democratic nomination. I think people look at Twitter and look at the loudest voices in the Republican Party and think they're all, you know, Sidney Powell acolytes. When I, I, I really do think that that's a, a pretty... Um, you know, small faction within the Republican Party. And even though there is widespread support for the president, if he goes down the, the, these crazy uh, conspiracy roads, I don't think he's going to be able to, to maintain the degree of support he has right now within the party. You're very well sourced with uh, on the Republican. You know, you're very well sourced in general, but you have obviously very, you've got very good sources on the on the right. What are they saying about 2024? Do they think it's a slam dunk that he would win the nomination if he pursued it again? Uh, number one, it, it really does depend on who you talk to. Uh, I've always liked to say that the Democrats have had a civil war between the left and the middle, and that's the big, and that might be an easier challenge, frankly. The Republicans are facing a period of anarchy. Um, and I, you know, you talk to ten Republican strategists, and you might get twenty different opinions on on you know what the future of the party is going to look like in a post-Trump era. You even saw like two stories. I think it was in Politico the last uh, over the last week. You know, one story quoted a couple of Republican senators saying that Trump is, you know, the favorite for the 2024 Republican nomination. But you had others on record who either wouldn't comment or like someone like Marco Rubio was not going nearly that far. Um, look, I, I, I think there's going to be a, you know, I don't think Republicans, when I ask Republicans, I say, what percentage of the party do you think is loyal to the to Donald Trump, to the president at all costs? And you get a number anywhere from like 15% to like 80%. I mean, they really don't know what is going to happen when Trump is out of power, right? And when that power loosens and when there's actually more of a vibrant competition for the future of the party. And they also, a lot of, I mean, I, 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 I don't think Trump is all that serious about running at age 79 uh, for re-election. He wants to get his name out there. He wants to maintain influence and power. Um, but I, I, I think you're going to see at a certain point some Republicans calling his bluff. You know, the, these are not like anti-Trumpers, but there'll be people in that that want to run for president that will praise Trump, will praise his legacy, will say nice things about him. But they're not going to, you know, they're not, they're not going to not run for office or not prepare a campaign of their own they, if they don't expect him to run in the first place. So I think you're going to see some Republicans later on in the cycle calling the president's bluff by basically saying, look, I, I, we respect Trump. We don't think you're going to run in 2024. And, and, and that, that's going to start moving the needle a little bit politically. Josh, what do you think is the president's legacy? Oh, that's a good question. Um I mean, look, the big picture legacy is he uh, really has divided the country to to, uh, you know, to the point where no one even agrees on a, a shared set of facts. And he's 
exploited the divisions in our country to just a, a dangerous and historic level. And I, you know, I think Joe Biden is sort of the ideal tonic as an, an old school politician who is likely going to try to govern from the middle. But boy, I mean, Trump was uh, someone who undoubtedly rubbed salt into the wounds of our body politic. And I don't think that's going to be going away right anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think, you know, to be honest, uh, when the historians look at the Trump administration, it's going to be more about just the crazy than the, the, than the policy. I mean, we, look, you can point to the foreign policy successes he's had in the Middle East. I think that's going to be the most lasting policy legacy. Uh, you know, the tax cuts might be repealed. They might be rolled back in, in a future administration and Biden administration. Um, you know, I don't think you can really point to any anything else on the policy side that's going to be all that lasting. So it's really, I mean, I, think, I just think he is the symbol of an alienated America, a divided public. And, uh, you know, we'll see if this is just a kind of a four-year blip in, in our American experiment or whether this could foreshadow bigger challenges, bigger problems going down the road. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree with all of that. The only thing I would add to it, you know, as as a liberal, um, my, you know, what Trump was able to accomplish uh, with judges in the judiciary, um, you know, he named three people uh, in four years, less than four years, to the Supreme Court. Uh, three, three. Uh, so there are three Trump justices on the court now. Um, not to mention federal, you know, benches, et cetera. And, um, you know, and, and I give a, you know, I, I, I think that's going to have sort of widespread impact on a lot of issues, social issues and issues in general. Um, so I would put that in there. Um, so what is your, you know, we're looking at, um, you know, we're looking at this Senate runoff in January. What is your, what's your take right now on what are what if you, what your if, what are the odds on Democrats winning both? And then what are the odds on them winning one? Well, so I think it's either going to, they're both going to go in the same direction. I, I would be stunned if one race went in a different direction than the other. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think Democrats have a better chance than they're publicly acknowledging uh, what's the number of r- one rule? And I mean, you know this, Doug, from from all the time you spent in democratic politics. The party that's divided is the party that almost always loses. And I have I have my skepticism about the strength of someone like John Ossoff or even Reverend uh, Raphael Warnock as candidates. But look, the Democratic Party is united behind them, and they just you know Joe Biden just won the state of Georgia. So, you know, when you have a runoff that's all about turnout, it's all about getting your voters back to the polls right after New Year's, you know, a lot of people don't want to show up for an off-year election. It really is about which side is more enthused and unified. Clearly, right now, the Democrats have that advantage. And, you know, I actually think that they may be, you know, at least even odds, if not more, to win those two Senate seats. Um, Look, at the same time, I think Donald Trump could solve a lot of the Republican Party's problems. He's going to be down on Saturday in in Valdosta, Georgia, and he'll have a chance to be on message and to say the right things to unite the party. I'm not a uh, every Republican I've talked to are is is biting their nails wondering what he's going to say because a lot of the expectation is that he's going to attack the state's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, he's going to attack the state's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. Uh, all the stuff you see on Twitter is going to be part of his stump speech. I mean, this could be a disaster. And as one Republican told me, you can't win without Trump, but you're not sure if you can win with him either, given what he might say 
unscripted in, in a rally when he's just all about his grievances these days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was some news made today that uh, Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney from New York was elected the new DCCC chairman. Um, Sean Patrick Maloney has been in, in Congress for um, uh, close to 10 years, I believe, and uh, represents one of those swing districts um, up in New York. Uh, overall, he's, you know, he's been able to do a, you know, win convincingly recently, but um he, uh, you know, he campaigned for the position on a sort of a, you know, we need to sort of like make widespread reforms within the committee. Um, what's your take on uh, this news? Uh, yeah, I'm sure you know uh, the congressman. Um, how do you think he's going to do? I think it's a great pick. I mean, I, I, I'm always biased in favor of members of Congress who run the committees who understand politics. Uh, Sean Patrick Maloney gets how to win elections. He represented a Trump district, but he, it's not just his own elections. He, he understands the give and take on what it, what it means to win a, win a competitive house district. Uh, strategically, he put out that, uh, I believe it was a, a kind of an after action report after the 2016 election. Um, and really, I think came up with some, some pretty smart diagnoses for what was alien, uh, the democratic party at the time, some of the challenges that they were facing that still hold true to this day. So, yeah, I mean, I think Sean Patrick Maloney is, is, I, he ran against, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, he ran against Sherry Bustos in, in when she was uh, elected DCCC chair. I, I mean, I thought he was the the best pick then, and I think the the Democrats made it. It was a close vote, but I think they made the uh, inspired uh, kind of uh, savvy pick by by going with Maloney. Okay, got a two, couple more questions for you, and I let you go. I know you're a busy guy. Talk to me about 22. Um, what are you know that this? It's actually not a particularly great year for Republicans in the Senate. Um, uh, there's also a whole bunch of gubernatorial uh, uh, contests that are up um, all across the country. What are you looking at? Uh, what are the if you were to give an early ranking right now of sort of the most you know sort of the most likely sort of the the say you know you're sort of the, the top Senate race to watch, what what would that be? Pennsylvania, I mean, it would be the open seat in Pennsylvania where Pat Toomey is retiring. Uh, that's going to be a wild, wild open race for both parties. And there'll be a good early look at where the Republican Party stands and, and whether Trump tries to get a Trumpy uh, Republican pick in office and whether, you know, the populist forces within the Democratic Party in a state like Pennsylvania. John Fetterman's name has come about, the state's lieutenant governor. He's a very colorful, quirky character um, who's more populist. He's a Bernie guy. Um, I'll be interested to see if he if he can make some inroads if he runs or whether a more, you know, more pragmatic, moderate, traditional suburban Democrat ends up prevailing in that Senate race. I'd also look at Wisconsin, by the way. Ron Johnson, I think he's going to run for re-election. Uh, that's, that's a state that was pretty close to 50-50 in this election. And I think that's going to be a hell of a race to watch in, in 2022. And lastly, tell me, how do you think you're, how do you think President-elect Biden is doing during this transition? How do you, what, what's your take on his uh, selection so far? Oh, I, I give him very high marks. And I think his team has been ahead of the curve throughout their whole, ever since he announced in April of 2019 and he campaigned on a return to normalcy he campaigned with a judgment that democrats wanted an electable candidate who was more moderate than where the energy of the party was and that was a bet that they took from the get-go that he articulated throughout the whole campaign and one that he didn't listen to the noise he didn't go on twitter didn't listen to the echo chamber and ran his campaign with that type of strategic know-how 
um, you know, caught, got him the presidency. It's a pretty darn good story that a guy who couldn't come close to the presidency and was written off by even Barack Obama <laughs> is now the 46th president of the United States of America. Um, and I think his, you know, his cabinet picks have been shrewd that he's picked people who are not going to alienate, um, you know, the Senate Republicans. They're going to get passed through the Senate Republican majority if, if that does hold. Um, but uh, they, these are people that also are not alienating enough to the progressives that they'll raise raise holy hell. So, I mean, I, I just think Biden ha- understands the sweet spot of American politics. He's the guy who's always been in the middle of the Democratic Party, no matter where it is at any certain moment in, in time. And I think that's going to hold his, his relationships in Washington is going to help him uh, at a very, very difficult time in our in our country's history. And I actually think he and look, he he enters office, I think, in a very strong position in the sense that one, you know, obviously 80 over 80 million votes, very solid popular vote victory. He was able to pick up two states that I think people, you know, especially Georgia was surprising to some folks. Uh, but Arizona, he rebuilt the blue wall. Um, but uh, and then when you look at how Democrats did down ballot, they didn't do particularly well. And so he has, I think, you know, if this was a blue wave in general and he did well and House Democrats did well and Senate Democrats did well, you know, I think that it would be it might be in a different he might be in a little bit different position, um, particularly if Democrats had won the Senate. I think there may may have been more pressure on him to uh, nominate certain folks and take certain positions that w- would um you know, uh, that, that the, the left of the party is pushing. Um, now it's divided government right now. It may be different after January 5th. I'm, I'm rooting for, uh, you know, Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff, but it's going to be a tight, those are going to be tight contests, but I, I think he's been very shrewd and, you know, Anita Dunn was on this podcast. My, she was my last, uh, last guest before you. And one of the things that I think, you know, we talked about and she's a real just like sort of expert on and is just maintaining message discipline from start to finish. And I think if you look at the Biden campaign, where they started um, embrace, you know, hooking their campaign to that moment in Charlottesville is sort of the, the theory of their case as to why Biden was running to restore the soul of the country that carried them all the way through and they never really deviated from that message. And I just think that if for folks who are looking for Joe Biden to sort of change or be different or become like, you know, hijacked by some element of the party, whether it's the left or right or whatever, that's just not going to happen. Like he's comfortable. He's a comfortable politician. He's super, he knows who he is. He's not going to change. And anyone who's thinking that's going to happen is I think it's wishful thinking. Joe, we know who Joe Biden is. He's going to conduct. He, that's how he's going to. That's going to be how he um, operates in the White House. Yeah, I mean, he was the right candidate at the right time, and and I think he realized that. And you're right. His campaign stayed on message. They had a strategy. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't deviate from the strategy, and and it led them to the White House. I, I also think there's a lot of political opportunity for for Biden. Um, people are kind of assuming that the traditional rules of politics are going to hold in the next midterm election. But look, if you think if, if you're a Republican who thinks Trump is going to still have a stranglehold on the party in the next four years, well, boy, that's a bad sign for 2022. Because look, Donald Trump is wants to pick fights with Mike DeWine and you know oust him in a in a governor's race primary. He wants to throw out. He wants to challenge Doug Ducey, who might run for the Senate in Arizona in in, in, in two years. You know, he wants to take on Brian Kemp, who's going to be in a really tough race for re-election, probably against Stacey Abrams. So if, if Donald Trump wants to blow up the party that he thinks he has control of, 
Well, there's so many opportunities for moderate Democrats in the Biden mold to win the Pennsylvania Senate nomination, to win nominations in Wisconsin and other states like Arizona, and to actually, you know, expand expand influence in, in a midterm election. So, look, I think a lot of people are looking at the old rules of politics and the old histories. And I think that that, that may way that may that may well sustain itself. But if you do believe that Trumpism or Trump himself rather is taking over the party and he's going to be um, challenging his own party leaders out of office, that is the recipe for a civil war within the Republican Party, and it could be a recipe for Biden to enhance his power as he develops uh, in office as a president. Josh Crosshour, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, my friend, for coming on uh, The Electables. Uh, how's your podcast going? Good. Uh, if you give me a chance to, to, to plug it, wrapping, wrapping yes, things up. Plug it right now. Against, plug your handles, all the different uh, platforms you have. Against the grain. You're a multimedia got, star. <laughs> we, we got columns twice a week uh, and the podcast. You can find it on iTunes or Spotify, Against the Grain, just type it in the, the search engine. Uh, we have uh, Congressman Greg Walden, who was the Republican head of the NRCC. He's leaving office, but he had some really candid words about his party's future, about Trump, about how Republicans should deal with the, the Biden administration cooperatively. So I, I really recommend it, to, especially to Democrats who want to hear kind of what the, the, the serious people on the other side are, are thinking across the aisle. All right, all right. All right, Josh, thanks, my friend. Um, and uh, um, thanks, everyone, to listening. Uh, we'll be back with another episode of The Electables next week. Uh, for my uh, producer, super producer, Michael Pelquin, this is Doug Thornell. And uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye.